Hello and welcome to Cubs PS Plus, a Northside numbers game, a weekly podcast that dives headfirst into the analysis of hot topics driving Chicago Cubs baseball. I'm your host, Mike Waller, a lifelong Cub fan, full-time baseball stat nerd, and sometime youth baseball coach. Thank you for spending some time with me today. I know there are a lot of choices out there. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram, both at Cubs PS Plus, a spin on the baseball metric OPS Plus. I'd love to know what you want to know about Cubs baseball. Welcome into episode 11. There's no Cubs baseball today, but that doesn't mean that today, October 6th, isn't a huge day in Cubs history. Come join me on a journey through the ghosts and goats of Cubs baseball past. We'll visit Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. We'll talk about Dizzy and Steve Trout. And we'll learn a little bit more about a goat and a shooting while we wind our way through six stops in 85 years of Cubs postseason history. Like any trip through a Cubs postseason, it's going to be a bumpy ride, so buckle up. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here. We. Go. Hey, hey! Wasn't that an exciting way for the Cubs to close out the 2022 season? A 15-2 crushing of the Cincinnati Reds. For all the offensive struggles this year, it was a lot of fun to see the offense bust out. So, what are you doing today? It's October 6th, and it's the first day without Cubs baseball to look forward to since the lockout ended and teams headed off to spring training. Here, it's a beautiful fall day without a cloud in the sky, exactly the kind of day you'd want for postseason baseball. But, alas, no postseason for the Cubs for the second year in a row and the third time in four years. With the Cubs being an exception yesterday, all of my teams are struggling to score now. The Cubs have been struggling most of the season. The Bears look like they're lacking playmakers to support Justin Fields. I know, a shocker, right? And my Iowa Hawkeyes are off to to a historically bad start offensively. I may spend my day checking the couch cushions for spare offense. There will be some key dates coming up for all of us to pay attention to. Free agency begins when the World Series ends. This will be sometime between November 1st and November 5th, depending on how long it takes the Mariners to beat the Braves. Yes, I'm adopting the Seattle Mariners at this point. Why not? I like weird and nobody wants to see Dodgers versus Astros or Yankees versus anybody this fall. Other things will fall into place after that. Teams will issue qualifying offers and begin signing players. They'll get their 40-man rosters cleaned up and set to protect the players they want to protect ahead of the Rule 5 draft by November 19th. I'll get more into those things in future episodes, as those will be off-field but critical things for the near-term future of the Chicago Cubs. For now, I'm still thinking about all the things we learned about the Cubs this season and looking ahead to the playoffs and missing the Cubs playing into October. I started following baseball as a kid late in the 1981 season. I remember finding the Cubs on WGN, and then I remember that Yankees-Dodgers World Series and Reggie Jackson's three-homer game. By the next year, I was all in on baseball and the Cubs. Playoff appearances were rare in those days. I remember the torture of Steve Garvey in 1984, Will Clark in 1989, and then just the unexpected surprise that was the 1998 wildcard run. After that, it was the Alex Gonzalez game of 2003, Offensive flameouts in 2007 and 2008 before the most recent run. That great stretch of baseball that started in 2015 and ended with a playoff dud in 2020 was the best run of Cubs baseball in my lifetime, and really, it's the best run in your lifetime too, unless you're 120 years old and finding obscure podcasts on your phone. I want to do something a little bit different with this episode. There's no Cubs baseball today. There's no Cubs baseball tomorrow. So let's look back. October 6th is a fascinating day in Cubs history. Most of it's bad, but hey, it's October and we're talking about the Cubs, so what did you expect? Let's dive into some ghosts and goats of baseball past. 
The journey begins on October 6th, 1938. The Cubs are coming off a loss to the Lou Gehrig and Joe DiMaggio-led Yankees in Game 1 of the World Series, but Game 2 will surely be better. It was a cloudy, windy Thursday that promised highs in the 50s, but like so many Chicago days, the bitter winds made it feel much, much colder. With Chicago living up to its name, the lines for the bleacher seats started really early. Above news stories about the GOP taking over Kansas, Winston Churchill negotiating with Adolf Hitler, and fighting going on in Czechoslovakia, the Chicago Daily Tribune ran the banner headline, All Flatnum, says Diz. With the great Dizzy Dean on the mound, the Cubs fans were hopeful the Cubs could get the win and go back to New York with the series tied tight. Dizzy Dean, a former leader of the famed Gas House Gang in St. Louis, was past his flamethrowing prime by 1938, especially after a foot injury suffered in the 1937 All-Star Game that would ultimately shorten his career. But he pitched with experience and guile down the stretch for the Cubs, especially in a late-season game against the Pirates just nine days before his World Series start. The Pirates came to Chicago up a game and a half in the standings with about a week to play. Old Diz, as he was often called, though he was only 28, pitched a gem in the first game of the series, and the Cubs won 2-1. to That set up the second game, where the Cubs and the Pirates battled to a 5-5 tie late. The sun was setting, and the umpires declared that the ninth inning would be the last. As an aside, if the game didn't complete, there were no rules at that point for suspended games, so the game would have to start over again the next day. You probably know what comes next. Cub legend Gabby Hardnett came to bat against Pirates hurler Mace Brown with two outs, and on an 0-2 pitch, hit a shot into the darkness. Wrigley Field erupted as the ball landed in the left center field bleachers, and fans stormed the field as Hardnett trotted around the bases. This shot would famously be called the Homer in the Gloman, a riff off a popular song at the time, Roman in the Gloman by Sir Harry Lauder. The Cubs completed the sweep of the Pirates the next day to take a game-and-a-half lead over Pittsburgh and clinched the pennant a couple days later in St. Louis setting up the showdown with the Yankees, who were trying to become the first team ever to win three straight World Series. This was a time before goats and curses and lovable losers. This was the ninth trip to the series for the Cubs in the World Series era, era, which began in 1903, and they would be back for a tenth trip seven years later in 1945, but we'll get to that soon. The 1938 Cubs were facing the Yankees in the Fall Classic for the second time in the decade after getting swept by the mighty Yankees in 1932. That 1932 Yankee team was led by Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. The Iron Horse did most of the heavy lifting in that series, hammering Cubs pitching. He went 9 for 17, scored 8 times, drove in 8, and hit 3 home runs, including his second of the game in Game 3, which followed another of the most famous home runs ever hit at Wrigley, Babe Ruth's famous called shot. Whether the Babe actually called his shot is much disputed, but has become a part of baseball lore and lives on to this day. The 1938 Cubs had several players still around from that 1932 team, including Hartnett, third baseman Stan Hack, pitcher Charlie Root, who gave up Ruth's famed home run, right fielder Babe Herman, and shortstop Billy Jurgis. On the Yankees' side, the Ruth had retired, but Joe DiMaggio was already a sensation in his third year in the Bronx. Lou Gehrig was still around, but 1938 would prove to be his last full season in baseball. He retired eight games into the 1939 season, and died of ALS, which became known as Lou Gehrig's disease, less than three years later. Lou had a strong second half in spite of his ALS beginning to advance. At the end of that season, Gehrig said, quote, I was tired midseason. I didn't know why, I just couldn't get going again, end quote. Gehrig had set a high bar, and probably only he and his wife, as portrayed in the movie The Pride of the Yankees, could see the early effects of the disease. 
But he was definitely a bat the Cubs were concerned about in this series. Back to this date in 1938. The Windy City is dizzy with hopes for a Cubs win. The Cubs notched one in the bottom of the first off Yankee star Lefty Gomez, but then Dean gave up two in the second when Joe Gordon doubled in DiMaggio and Garrick. Garrick had a hit and scored at least one time in every game he ever played at Wrigley. The Cubs came back in the third with two more. All three Cub runs at this point have been driven in by center fielder Joe Marty. Old Diz battled and battled, and the score held inning after inning after inning from there, but the Cub hurler was holding it together with sticks and twine at that point. He said his arm started stinging in the second inning, and by the sixth inning, it felt like a bone was sticking out of the elbow, he said. Now removed from his days of throwing heat, Dean was keeping the Yanks off balance with slow stuff. Joe Williams of the New York World Telegram would report that it was shocking how Dean would take great Yankee hitter after great Yankee hitter and make, quote, a first-class sap of him, end quote. To illustrate this point, Dean got through future Hall of Famers DiMaggio, Garrick, and Bill Dickey on nine pitches in the sixth inning. Diz took that slim lead into the eighth, but battled to two outs with Merrill Hogue on first when Frankie Crosetti came up. Crosetti had, had good swings on Dean all day, but hadn't produced much. The two battled to a 3-2 count, and the crowd was going wild in the stands and all along the rooftops on Waveland and out of all the windows on Sheffield. Crosetti took a high pitch from Dean and hit what seemed like a simple fly ball that just kept carrying all the way into the left field bleachers. That put the Yankees up 4-3, and after a scoreless eighth for the home team, Tommy Henrik reached to lead off the Yankee ninth ahead of DiMaggio, who sealed the game and probably the series with a two-run homer. Dean left the game, and the Cubs lost 6-3. They would ultimately be swept out in New York a few days later. In those days, Cubs fans didn't believe in jinxes or curses. The Cubs had some chances, but lost to a Yankee team that was already consistently great and would grow to become even more dominant in the coming decades. Though it had been 30 years since the Cubs' last World Series win, they had enough success that fans would be eagerly looking forward to the next winner on the North Side year after year. The next Cub appearance in the World Series would prove to be the last for more than seven decades and see a rejection grow into the legends of jinxes and curses we have all come to know too well as Cubs fans. The 1945 baseball season was the last season with some of its top stars off fighting in World War II. Players like Joe DiMaggio, Bob Feller, Stan Musial, Ted Williams served their nation and went off to war. Baseball continued to, in the words of Terrence Mann and Field of Dreams, mark the time back home. The war was winding down in the summer of 1945, and the war was officially over by late September. By October 6, 1945, the world news was dominated by treaty talks, and carving up territory following the defeat of the Axis powers. Back home, there were promises of economic growth, threats of labor strife. The Chicago Daily Tribune ran a political cartoon by Carrie Orr, front and center on page one, showing a Chicago fat cat screaming wildly, bashing politics with his right hand and economics with his left, in the top frame over the lower frame, showing a battered tiger with a D hat and a cub with a C hat pacing off against each other. Above the cartoon ran a subheadline. You'll have to pardon us this week, gentlemen. All eyes were on Wrigley Field and the Cubs and Tigers in the World Series. The morning of October 6th promised to be a great day for baseball. It would be a warm day after some early rain, which would prove pivotal later. The Cubs were hosting the Tigers for Game 4, the first game at Wrigley in the series after 3 in Detroit, as baseball used to play a 3-3-1 format. 
The Cubs dominated the Tigers 9-0 in Game 1, and the Tigers came back to win Game 2 4-1. In Game 3, Claude Passeau locked up the Tigers' offense with a complete game, one-hit shutout, and the Cubs took the series lead with a 3-0 victory. Peanuts Lowry got the Cubs scoring started with a double off Tigers pitcher Stubby Overmeyer. Man, I love old-time baseball names. Peanuts and Stubby are so much more colorful than Harry and Frank. And those runs were all Passeau needed. Spirits were very high as the teams came back to Chicago, seven years to the day since the Cubs last hosted a World Series game. The local beat writers were wary of Cubs' failures in World Series past, getting swept in three of their past four appearances, but they were optimistic about the Cubs' chances in 45. From Daily Tribune writer Edward Burns, quote, The Cubs themselves have forgotten all about those failures since 1908. There's not a man on the squad who isn't confident the series will end tomorrow afternoon, with the Cubs hailed as new world champions, end quote. Forgetting failures? That's just not how Chicago works. The October 6th crowd would be a huge one, with a full house of more than 44,000 people. The tickets were so hot, the Chicago Police Department picked 20 detectives to roam the loop streets looking for scalpers. Those detectives were aided by 25 deputies from the IRS. Lines formed overnight for bleacher seats, which would go on sale at 7 a.m. on game day for $1.20. Once the bleacher seats were sold, there would be 2,500 standing room only tickets sold for $3.60 each. One popular Cub fan at the time was Bill Cianis, an immigrant from Greece who came to Chicago in 1912. He worked his way up the social ladder by shining shoes and delivering newspapers. He learned English by reading those papers. And in 1934, he bought the Lincoln Tavern across the street from Chicago Stadium, which is now the United Center, for $205. Bill's check bounced. By some reports, he bounced two checks. But he was able to pay the debt from his first weekend of earnings. And from then on, the tavern was his. If you don't recognize the name yet, he would become famous soon after when a young goat fell off a passing truck on its way to a slaughterhouse. Bill would adopt the goat, take the nickname Billy Goat Cianus, and grow a goatee. Soon after, he branded the tavern Billy Goat Inn, now the famous Billy Goat Tavern. The man knew how to go all in on an idea. Billy and his goat became a staple around Chicago. They often showed up together at sporting and political events, including games at Wrigley. That fateful Saturday, Sienna's had two box seat tickets, one for himself and one for his goat Murphy, who was decked out in a makeshift Cubs jersey. The Wrigley ushers let him in as they had done previously while they checked with owner William Wrigley. Remember those rains I mentioned earlier? Have you ever smelled a wet dog? How about a wet goat? Ugh. Wrigley said Bill could stay, but the goat could not. The odor was just too much. Bill didn't stay. He stormed out angrily and reportedly declared, Them Cubs, they ain't gonna win no more. Newspaper accounts of the Billy Goat story wouldn't show up for years, and certainly the papers didn't have anything on it after the game, but the legend certainly took off from there. Sienis and his goat left early, but there was still baseball to be played. Ray Prim was on the mound for the Cubs against another Diz, this time Dizzy Trout who had tried out with the Cubs before catching on in Detroit for what proved to be a Hall of Fame career. The game started out close with each pitcher cruising through three innings. The wheels fell off for Prim in the fourth, however, or maybe the curse kicked in, I don't know, as the Tigers scored four runs on a walk and three hits, including a single from the legendary Hank Greenberg to put the Tigers on the board. Trout had the Cubs fishing all day and wound up scattering five hits with six strikeouts and a complete game victory. The Cubs would go on to lose Game 5 before forcing the series back to Detroit for Game 7, where, of course, the Tigers won handily 9-3. to I'm not a curse guy, 
But the Cubs do sure create a lot of their own bad luck. Curses, jinxes or not, the Cubs would not see the postseason again for 39 years. And when they did make it back, they would get there in part thanks to Dizzy Trout's son, Steve. When you don't play in the postseason for almost four decades, there's not a lot of on this day in October 6th history. So we fast forward to 1984. This was the first Cubs postseason of my lifetime. In fact, it was the first good season the Cubs had in my memory. You know, I was a long-suffering 10-year-old at that point. That summer was magic. I remember WGN using Van Halen's Jump as the intro music all season. And every time I could, I'd catch the leadoff man intro and then often stay all the way through the 10th inning closer. Harry Carey brought his love for the horse track to Wrigley Field and called leadoff hitter Bob Dernier and second baseman and two-hole hitter Ryan Sandberg the daily double all season, referring to how often Dernier and Sandberg would kickstart the Cubs offense early in games. 1984 was also when the movie The Natural came out. Remember Babe Ruth's supposed called shot and Billy Jurgis mentioned earlier on those 1932 and 1938 Cubs World Series teams? In 1932, the Babe was an obvious target of opposing players and fans, and the 1932 series was no different. However, the talk back and forth between the two teams was amped up because the Cubs had picked up Mark Koenig to play shortstop that year. Koenig was a former member of the 1927 Yankees' Murderer's Row, generally hitting second in front of Ruth and Gehrig. Boy, talk about lineup protection. Anyway, back in those days, teams would vote on how much of the World Series share to provide to each player. This was a big deal as the money then was way less than today, with most players making less than $5,000 per season. Koenig, new to the team that season, was only voted a half share, and this was not taken well by his former Yankee teammates. That the Cubs, their fans, and Ruth had words often is a fact. It's been widely reported that the Koenig shares were near the center of this. Why do I bring that up, and what does that have to do with the natural? Remember the scene in The Natural when a young Roy Hobbs is shot in a hotel room by a woman after striking out the whammer? The story seems to be based, at least potentially in part, on Cub Billy Jurgis, a light-hitting shortstop with a strong defensive reputation. On July 6, 1932, a Chicago showgirl named Violet Valley shot Jurgis at the Hotel Carlos where they both lived. Valley left a suicide note and intended to kill Jurgis and then herself. There's never been definitive confirmation, but it seems that this story is at the core of the shooting of Roy Hobbs of the movie. Future baseball owner Bill Veck, who was working for the Cubs then, later wrote that Jurgis was not actually involved with Valley, but was instead covering up for a married teammate having an affair with Valley, and Jurgis was shot trying to break up a fight between them. There is another option to serve as the basis for the shooting in the natural. There was another player, Eddie Waitkus, who played for the Cubs. He was shot by a stalker, Ruth Ann Steinhagen, at a Chicago hotel in 1949 when he came back on a road trip as part of the Philadelphia Phillies. That could have been the inspiration for Bernard Malamud's book, The Natural, in 1952 that was eventually made into the movie. It seems Malamud may have taken aspects of each into his overarching story, but the similarities of the Whammer to Babe Ruth and settings more like the 1930s had me leading toward the Jurgis story. After Jurgis was shot, he survived. Obviously, he played in the 1938 World Series, but he missed the rest of the season, and the Cubs picked up Koenig to fill the shoes at shortstop for the rest of the year. The late acquisition was largely the reason for the half share, and the rest has become baseball lore. The Natural was a hot ticket in theaters in the summer of 1984, and the Cubs were also becoming baseball's biggest story. The Cubs battled the Mets most of the season and then pulled away late, thanks largely to the Cy Young season from Rick Sutcliffe, who was acquired in a June trade with Cleveland for Mel Hall and a young Joe Carter. 
Rhino was fantastic all year, winning the NL MVP in just his third full season in the bigs. The future was bright, the bud was cold, and the sun was out all season. The Cubs cruised into the playoffs, ready to change history against the San Diego Padres. The first two games were, a bit controversially, played at Wrigley Field, with the final three scheduled for San Diego. This would be the last year that baseball would play a best-of-five series in the League Championship Series. In 1985, it went to a best-of-seven. There was It was a little bit controversial because the Cubs did not have lights at the time, and with the Cubs being the biggest story in the baseball world, networks wanted to put them on in prime time, but you couldn't do that at Wrigley Field with no lights. They would not have lights until 1988. In Game 1, the Cubs got out of the gates fast with Dernier and Matthews hitting home runs in the first inning. From there, they cruised behind Rick Sutcliffe, who shut out the Padres on two hits through seven innings and hit a home run of his own in the third. The Cubs then won Game 2 behind a strong outing from Dizzy Trout's kid, Steve. The Cubs got ahead 3-0 by the third, and Trout made that lead hold up. The Cubs, at that point, were baseball's biggest story and needed just one win in three tries to get back to the World Series for the first time since Bill Cianis was kicked out of Wrigley with his pet goat, Murphy. Even when the Cubs win, things don't come easy. And Game 3 was no exception. The Padres' bats got hot in the warmer California sun, and they won the game 7-1. to which takes us to October 6th, 1984. Many of you know what's coming here. The Cubs fell behind in the third inning when Tony Gwynn drove in a run on a sacrifice fly off Scott Sanderson, and then Steve Garvey followed with a run-scoring double. The game would prove a seesaw affair, though, with the Cubs posting three in the fourth on home runs by Jody Davis and Leon Durham. A Steve Garvey single, are you getting a pattern here? And a pass ball brought in two Padre runs in the seventh, putting the Padres back up 5-3. to three. The Cubs would rally, though, thanks to a Sandberg single and stolen base, followed by a Keith Moreland single. Henry Cotto ran for Moreland and tied the game on a Jody Davis double. The Cubs held the Padres in the eighth and didn't score in the ninth, so the game went to the bottom of the ninth. The Cubs put in their dominating closer, Lee Smith, who held the Padres in check. Smith got the leadoff out before Tony Gwynn singled, and Steve Bleeping Garvey hit his famous home run to right center, just over the glove of Henry Cotto at the wall. The Cubs lost a game most of us thought they'd win, and it was the first time in my lifetime I felt that Cubs angst. Game 5 had all the predictable things. An early Cubs lead, a close game late, and a precursor to the infamous Bill Buckner play in the 1986 World Series. A ground ball that went right through first baseman Leon Durham's legs in what turned out to be a key part of a four-run Padre 7th that iced the series. The Detroit Tigers, man, sure would have been nice to see the Cubs try to get that series win against the last team to beat them in 1945, wound up cruising to the championship, beating the Padres four games to one. That game four in San Diego isn't quite on par with the Alex Gonzalez-Dusty Baker game. Yes, Steve B. never should have been on the hook in 2003, but it's not far off. And it's what brought me fully into the immersive experience that is being a Cubs baseball fan. Losing Game 5 with Sutcliffe on the mound and Durham's error was arguably a worse loss, but Cubs fans could feel the momentum gone and the despair rising after that Game 4 loss. The Cubs have had two other October 6th postseason memories, the next of which came 23 years later in 2007, when the Cubs were unceremoniously swept out of the playoffs by the Arizona Diamondbacks. No curses, no drama, just a quick exit against a team that played much better baseball than the Cubs did. Not all the October 6th history is bad, though. With the curse broken and the Cubs winning it all in 2016, the Cubs faced the Washington Nationals in Game 1 of the NLDS on October 6, 
2017. The Cubs were an underdog that series to a Nationals team with Bryce Harper, Steven Strasburg, Anthony Rendon, and Max Scherzer. Kyle Hendricks took the mound for the Cubs on a warm Washington night to take on Steven Strasburg. Strasburg no-hit the Cubs through five and only gave up three hits and two unearned runs on the day with 10 strikeouts. But the day belonged to Kyle. Savage Kyle went seven innings, giving up no runs on two hits with six strikeouts. The Nationals didn't have a hit after the second inning. The Nationals didn't have a hit after the second inning. Carl Edwards Jr. took the eighth, and Wade Davis nailed down the save in the ninth with a 1-2-3 inning. Hendricks' gem was critical as the Cubs lost two of the next three with very little scoring before Game 5, where a bizarre four-run fifth inning off Nationals ace Max Scherzer put the Cubs up for good and sent them to the third straight National League Championship Series where they would eventually lose to the Los Angeles Dodgers. It's the last bit of playoff success they've had during the great run from 2015 to 2020. There's no baseball today, but I look forward to baseball on this date in the future. Baseball without curses or self-doubt. Just best versus best and drama on the field. Who will be those heroes? Are they on the roster today? Thank you for spending time with me today, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I certainly did. Please take 10 seconds and drop a rating and a review on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever it is you find your podcasts. Just a few seconds will help me get better and help others find the show. As always, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CubsPSPlus, a spin on the baseball metric OPS+. This is Mike Waller, host of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. Every day talking about Cubs baseball is a great day. Go Cubs!